Kia ora, I'm Georgina Campbell. It's February 23 and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. Two years have passed since Russia invaded Ukraine, but there is still no end in sight for the conflict as Ukraine desperately seeks funding and support from its global allies, the war continues in an effective stalemate, with both sides struggling to make ground. However, could the suspicious death of incarcerated Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny spur Western forces to take more of a stand against Vladimir Putin? For much of the last two years, Kiwi journalist Tom Much has been following the conflict on the ground in Ukraine. He joins the front page today from Kiev for the latest on this war. Tom, can you give us an idea of how close to the front line you are and what it's like on the ground where you've been recently? All righty. So right now I am back in Kiev, which is, of course, the capital of Ukraine. And it's pretty far. It's a couple of hundred kilometres away from any front line. There was obviously a front line here at the very start of the war, but we're going back to about March 2022 now, nearly two years when the Russians tried to make that mad dash for Kiev at the very start of the war, and they got beaten back and sort of retreated with their tail between their legs. I have, however, I've been in the Kharkiv region in a near a town called Kupiansk, which is on the front line or very close to the front line. And we were working with Ukrainian soldiers who are actually working with a unit who pilot drones. Now, for people who follow this war closely, they'll know that the two most important types of weapons really are one is artillery, just the standard artillery that's been, you know, used from the first, second world wars onwards, and drones, both first person view drones, which are the ones that you just sort of, you know, put a camera on your face and fly and they fly them into enemy tanks and vehicles. And this unit was using what's called vampire drones, which are these slightly bigger drones that cost about 30,000 bucks and they strap a bunch of grenades, mortar shells, explosives to them, fly them over the Russian lines, and then they drop them all on them. So we spent a night uh, staying with them and working with them. But I am, as I said, now back in the relative safety of Kiev. And even in Kiev, you have a curfew, though? Yes, so there has been a curfew. There's a curfew in almost every region of Ukraine. There's a curfew. It starts at midnight. Everything, you know, shops, bars, restaurants, whatever, are supposed to close by 10 p.m. Now, the unofficial reason for that, more or less, is that they still like to be able to do stuff at night, like, you know, move vehicles or military equipment around, and they don't really want people on the streets who can kind of, you know, see what's going on, you know, just to kind of keep things a bit more safe and secure. Also, you know, if there are explosions throughout the night and stuff, it's more helpful to have people inside to not have to deal with people outside thronging the streets or being drunk and disorderly or whatever. It just, they feel it helps sort of keep order, more or less. And you've been in Ukraine a lot over the past two years. 
How has the mood or the atmosphere changed in that time? So I have been here on and off more or less since the very, very start. I I arrived about one month before the full-scale invasion began. And in that time, we've sort of, we've gone through various sort of shifts in the public mood. So at the very start, of course, in that first week or two, there was just this sort of absolute shock and in some ways sort of despair and anger at like, how could something like this happened in 2022, one of the biggest land invasions in history. And then there was the shock that they managed to beat them back from Kiev. Then over at least the first year, while, you know, everyone was very sort of heart-wrenched and traumatized by the war, there was this general sense that things were actually going pretty well. The Ukrainians won a series of the, the sort of the three famous victories, chasing them out of Kiev, then another victory where they kicked them out of the Kharkiv region, and then a final victory where they retook the major city of Kherson in the south. So about this time last year, there was quite a lot of optimism uh, in the air that the war might be over soon and that Ukraine might be able to retake all of its lost territories, including the ones that were lost in 2014, uh, like Crimea and the cities of Donetsk and Luhansk. Now, the mood uh, now, I would say, is a bit grimmer than it was back this time last year. There was a, a major Ukrainian counteroffensive last year that was very hyped up that, you know, Western allies donated a lot of ammunition and tanks and rocket launchers and all that sort of stuff for. But it didn't go very well. It didn't make much progress. It didn't manage to penetrate all the way through the main Russian lines of defense. And ever since then, not only did the Ukrainians lose a lot of their combat power, but since then, the Russians managed to regenerate and they've been on the offensive again in the east. And not only that, there's been the problems with with Western aid, European Union aid was held up for a long time when Hungary was vetoing it. And of course, right-wing Republicans in the US Congress have still are still blocking that 60 billion aid package that Ukraine was really sort of counting on and relying on to survive throughout 2024. Uh, it doesn't mean that things are about to collapse or that the Ukrainians necessarily want to start fighting, but there is a recognition now that they might have to change strategy change to a more defensive approach and people are starting to lose hope that they are going to sort of reconquer all of Ukraine's lost land. For Ukraine, losing Avdivka is a blow to troop morale. And it's happening as Ukraine runs critically low on ammunition and manpower, giving Russia its most significant battlefield victory since taking Bakhmut in May 2023. It shows how Russian forces may be regaining the initiative in Ukraine as Kyiv grapples with critical shortages of weapons and soldiers. Over the last week, both sides have been trading blows. Ukraine has destroyed some of Russia's military arsenal while Russia has taken control of the town of Avdivka. Is it fair to say the war is at a stalemate or is it more complicated than that? So both are right. In a way, it is a stalemate because neither side can really make any really big offensive blows. Yes, Ukraine has managed to do, you know, it didn't it destroyed another Russian landing ship and shot down a few Russian planes. 
uh, they were actually were able to do that quite successfully. That was the one uh, fear to where the Ukrainians did have a lot of success last year was actually in the sea because the Russians pulled out of a deal to allow Ukrainian grain to transit through the Black Sea, through the Bosphorus Strait. Uh, Ukraine actually managed to keep that grain corridor open by force, by, and it managed to destroy a lot of major Russian ships. It managed to hit the Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Crimea with missiles. And so that is where Ukraine did have a lot of success. However, the Russian army has slowly been taking more ground in the east. As you said, the town of Avdivka, which has actually been on the front line since 2014, finally fell. And the main reason it fell was that the Ukrainians simply ran out of artillery ammunition. They had their defensive lines basically built on the expectation of having a certain number of shells that would be delivered from the United States. And the Russians basically just threw soldiers and armoured vehicles at Avdivka hundreds of armoured vehicles, probably more than 10,000 Russian soldiers were killed, yet eventually the Ukrainians just ran out of shells and bullets to fire back at them. So that was pretty grim news, really. And the worry is, of course, is that now that Russia is on more of a war footing and it has a larger population anyway, the worry is that even if this year it looks like a stalemate, it looks like there won't be any major breakthroughs on the front lines that going into 2025, 2026, the Russians will be able to use their larger industry and their larger, you know, pool of people, basically, in order to slowly grind the Ukrainians down. So, you know, maybe a stalemate now, but unless the West, particularly the United States, gets its act together, the prognosis for Ukraine doesn't look great in the long run. Earlier this month, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky fired his top commander, Valery Zaluzhny. What sparked this? And is this a sign of wider issues or discontent with Zelensky's leadership? So we don't entirely know why Zaluzhny was sacked. There are various rumours running around. The least charitable to Zelensky is the idea that Zaluzhny had his own political ambitions and that he wanted to make a run for president and that Zelensky effectively wanted to sort of chop that out or, or sort of make his star fall to earth, so to speak. Then there is the fact that some people in Ukraine, and apparently the Americans have said, the Americans who work with Zeluzhny say that it was his fault that the counteroffensive failed last year. That Now, it's hard to know who made what decisions at what time, but there were some quite foolish moves made in the counteroffensive. I think the main one was that the Ukrainians decided to make three axes of attack rather than one. Apparently, that was Zeluzhny's decision. And basically, rather than get one axis of attack that would have punched through the Russian lines, they got three that got about halfway and then just got stuck. So there was that. He kind of carried the can for the fact that the counteroffensive failed. And there was also a big political argument between Zelensky and Zeluzhny about mobilization of troops. So the conscription age, you, you can be conscripted in Ukraine at the moment if you're a, if you're a man over 27 years of age. And there's been a lot of talk about lowering that and getting like younger men forcibly conscripting them into the armed forces. There was an argument between Zelensky and Zeluzhny over that. 
There was other related stuff about messaging. Zelensky didn't like the fact that Solushny had come out and said that the war was a stalemate. He said he thought that that was a bad signal to send to sort of Ukraine's Western allies. So I think it would be accurate to say that there sort of was just a breakdown in trust and vision between Zelensky, who is, of course, the overall civilian commander, and Zeluzhny, who as gifted a military general with, with, you know, some impressive victories under his belt, that relationship just was not working anymore. And Alexander Sersky, who is the general who replaced him, is reported to have a better relationship with Zelensky. He's not as well liked in Ukraine and he's not as well liked among frontline troops. But that political military relationship does really need to be watertight when you're facing a war like this. So was it the correct decision? Who knows? And I think we'll we'll know a bit more about the wisdom or lack thereof of that decision as the year goes on and more battles play out. Some call Zelushny the Iron General, and many Ukrainians see him as a national hero. His dismissal could deal a blow to morale and potentially backfire politically for Zelensky. Polling suggests Zelushny has more of the public's trust than the president. For his own part, in his own statement, Zelushny said the tasks of 2024 are different from those of two years ago. Everyone must change and adapt to the new realities, he said. What about Zelensky? Does he still have the support of his citizens and how he's handling this conflict? So broadly, yes, uh, his popularity is not quite what it was. You know, there were there was a sort of sky high levels of popularity in those first weeks of the war. His approval rating was in the nineties. You know, it had been thir- in the thirties before the war. It was now in the nineties. It's it's sort of come back down to earth, and it's about in the mid sixties. But I think most people except that the war is not the time to have a change of leadership. So there was one poll that came out recently that said at least uh, that more than 70% of Ukrainians believe that he should basically see them through until the end of the war. Now, Ukraine is officially due for elections this year, but they're widely expected that they're not going to be held just because of the war. And there's no big clamour, for instance, whether it's among regular citizens or opposition politicians for those elections or for a change of leadership at the top. Now, I think that Ukrainians more or less think that, you know, for better or for worse, Zelensky is going to be the man who leads them through to the end of the war. Let's move across the border to Russia. The second anniversary of the war has almost been overshadowed by the death of Alexei Navalny. How have Ukrainians reacted to that news? So it should be worth saying that Navalny was not a particularly popular figure in Ukraine for a variety of internal reasons here. He became infamous in Ukraine where he said that Crimea is not a sandwich that should be passed back and forth, which was seen to be to be sort of okaying the Russian annexation of Crimea. There was a lot of stuff from when he was younger or like, you know, we're talking like, you know, 15 years plus about where he was a seemingly fairly strident Russian nationalist. So in Ukraine, I think Ukrainians are hopeful in some way that this death does once again demonstrate to the outside world the kind of regime that they're dealing with in the Russian state. 
But at the same time, Navalny was not a particularly well-liked or well-trusted figure within Ukraine. He was much more an internal Russian political figure. And even his activism, his activism was much more about the internal corruption of Putin and what they call a Siloviki, which are the sort of the powerful men around Putin, than it ever was about Ukraine specifically. So not so popular in Ukraine, but we've certainly seen a global backlash to Navalny's death. Do you think that that will amount to anything, as Ukrainians might hope, perhaps more support for Ukraine? So impossible to really say, but as I said, I think what it does remind people of is it does remind observers in the West of the sort of the nature of the Russian regime. This is a regime that consistently jails and kills political opponents from all sides of the political spectrum. If you're considered to be a colourful, outspoken figure that's a threat to the popularity of Putin and the ruling regime, that's it. You get taken out. And you see that from all sorts of different characters. You're like Evgeny Prigozhin, his jet getting shot out of the sky. There's an interesting case that not a lot of people uh, sort of outside Russia know about of a, a man called Igor Gherkin, who was actually one of the leaders in 2014. He was a Russian who was who helped instigate the Russian invasion of Donbass in 2014. And he's been thrown into jail for criticizing the regime for not conducting the war properly. And now Navalny, who was considered fairly liberal and fairly Western minded, he's been killed for, you know, opposing the regime and pointing out the corruption and stuff like that. It's not to say that, you know, within the West, we don't have our own problems. You know, I think people looking in London and looking at the possible extradition of Julian Assange could say that there's some hypocrisy within the West as well. But I think the specific brutal murder of the most outspoken opposition figure in Russia coming one month before the supposed Russian elections, in quote, is a pretty big signal of the regime you're dealing with. And that's why Ukrainians would say you can't expect us to cut a deal with a man like Putin or a regime like this. Navalny's cause of death remains unknown. Across Russia, more than 50,000 people have now signed a petition demanding Navalny's body be released. In Moscow, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov blasted Western leaders who've blamed Putin for Navalny's death. An investigation is underway, and all necessary actions in this regard are being carried out. Therefore, we believe that it is absolutely inadmissible to make such well, frankly, boorish statements. Let's talk about that election. Uh, Putin is heading back to the polls the next month. Are there concerns he could use a victory to launch a sort of researched assault on Ukraine? So there's a worry in one sense, and that sense is that while the elections are widely considered to be fraudulent, as we saw, for instance, in Belarus in 2020, I believe, elections, even rigged elections, can be a flashpoint for popular anger. So would it often make sense if a regime, if an authoritarian regime, wants to take some unpopular step to push it back after the election? 
And the worry is, will Putin decide to call for what's called a full mobilization? Now, Putin mobilized starting in, in October 2022, did what's called a partial mobilization, which meant that anybody who had been in the military or was signed up for the military reserves could be forcibly mobilized. But they managed to do it in a way where they sort of they targeted former soldiers, they targeted people away from Moscow and St. Petersburg to not sort of have popular anger in the major cities that could cause political problems. Now, the worry is, is that after this election, again, I'm doing air quotes with my fingers, happens, and there is going to be no flashpoint for popular you know, discontent with the regime like there was in Belarus, that he could call to mobilize the entire population, which would be politically unpopular. But he may feel that now he has sufficient control of the country with anybody, you know, who was a potential opposition figure, either dead or in jail, that he now has enough control over the country to do a very politically unpopular move like that. And that could feed millions and millions of men into the Russian army. And again, just exacerbate those tendencies that I talked about earlier, where the Russian army just becomes stronger just because they have a lot more people. They're putting a lot more of their sort of industrial effort into the war than the West is, and that they eventually sort of are able to overwhelm Ukraine just by strengths of sheer numbers. And that, that scenario in Avdiivka that I told you about earlier, where the Russians lost thousands of men and hundreds of armored vehicles. And you know, but the Ukrainians eventually ran out of ammunition to fight back with it. That could be repeated in more cities across Ukraine. Tom, you've previously told the front page that Ukrainians are never going to give up in this war. They don't want to see Russia win. Is that still the case for them? And do you think they still have a choice in the matter? So do Ukrainians have a choice in whether they keep fighting at the moment? Not really. The Russian government doesn't look like it's ever put forward either through its intermediaries recently any sort of serious kind of peace proposals. The Russians think that they have the wind at their sails now, largely because of the failure of the Ukrainian counteroffensive and the failure of the US Congress to pass aid for Ukraine. So Ukrainians are still very determined to not let their country fall to the Russians. However, you would speak to people a year 18 months ago, and they would say no compromise until every square inch of Ukraine has the Ukrainian flag flying over it. You will now hear more people say things like, we're never going to get back, for instance, Donetsk and Luhansk or Crimea. That's just not realistic without within our military power to do so, and that we should focus on keeping what we have at some point coming to a negotiated settlement that gets some of their land back. You're hearing a lot more people say that now. I was, I was thinking it was interesting when the battle for Avdivka went on. Actually, a lot of people in Ukraine calling for Ukraine to withdraw, saying the lives of our soldiers are more important than this one beat-up, destroyed town, Avdivka. And I would say that maybe a year or 18 months ago, you were a little bit less likely to hear that sentiment. The sentiment was more hold on to whatever we can. So there is a bit of a sea change in Ukrainian attitudes to whether they can basically win back the entirety of their territory. Thanks so much for joining us, Tom. Thank you again for having me and thank you for not letting Ukraine go off the radar too much. 
that's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Ethan Sills with sound engineer Paddy Fox. I'm Georgina Campbell. Subscribe to The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts and tune in on Monday for another look behind the headlines.